Osiris. A note for listeners. Production for Alive Again began before the passing of bassist Tony Markellis. You'll hear memories of Tony throughout the series. Rest in peace, Tony. I always think like music is is like the ocean and, and musicians are like fishermen. That's the best you could hope for. It's like you're in your tiny section of the ocean or you're flirting around in your teeny little rowboat over here, but the ocean is so deep and so wide. So, you know, in a lifetime you could never, there's always more to learn. There's so much more to learn. I don't believe that people are alone. I think the best stuff happens when everybody realizes that they're part of a, something bigger. Clearly tab, clearly fish, if you really look, that's what it is. like a like a grooving sonic orchestra that was always the idea of tap all of these things that i've done over the years playing with the orchestra orchestrating gaiuti doing the fish doing the tab all of these things kind of culminated at the beacon there was a couple of moments in there where i was like this is what i've been trying to achieve all these years it was just like oh my god this is this is it what was cool about the Beacon Jams was that it all went together. Or orchestral gestures, the strings, the horn lines, it was all in there in a digestible form and unified. It was really, really deeply, deeply satisfying. I don't know if I've ever been so happy. Welcome to Alive Again. In this episode, you'll hear about the beginning of Trey Anastasio's solo career, from when he began studying and writing music to the 1998 show at Higher Ground in Burlington, which led to the creation of the Trey Anastasio Band. Thanks for tuning in. After 15 albums and 1,400 performances, Trey is spending a lot of time in his 150-year-old barn outside of Burlington. Hold up with the same old guitar, but a lot of new ideas. Why this? Why perform with an orchestra? Why have your songs performed by an orchestra? You're not straight out of Broadway. How did this happen? How did you guys come together? After collaborating with some of the best in the business, guitar virtuosos like B.B. King and Neil Young, 
Ray has reconnected with the man who first taught him how to write music. His longtime mentor, composer Ernie Stiers. The first music lessons I got, I had a drum teacher who was a Dixieland teacher. His name was High Frank, very old guy. He was about 91. He was, had been in a group called High Frank and the Ambassadors of Dixieland. He told me that I had to start off for one year on the pillow um, with a metronome. So my first year of drum lessons, this I must have been like 11 or 12. All I did was divide rhythm. And then after the first year, I got a pad, practice pad. And from there, I wanted a guitar. And I was also told that you can, you can get a guitar if you start with classical guitar. And so I started with Bach. And it always stuck with me. As soon as I learned a Bach Gavat, I wanted to write a Bach Gavat. Before I took guitar lessons, I was writing songs. So songwriting was always part of my life. I actually have a vivid memory of writing a song in third grade. I remember, and I always remember all the songs. <laughs> it was about my cat, whatever. My social life was songwriting. I had a group of friends in school starting around fifth grade that when we got together, all we used to do was write songs. We would hide in the corner at parties and write songs. And that would be Tom and some other friends of ours. The way most people would catch up by having a conversation when they hadn't seen each other, when we get in the room, we would catch up by writing a song about whatever. I'm Tom Marshall, longtime friend of Trey's. We met a long time ago in eighth or ninth grade at Princeton Day School in Princeton, New Jersey. So that was 1978. And I was into piano and had two guitarist pals. Uh, we had a band called Ann Back, and we wrote about 50 songs, maybe together, all told. But sometimes Trey would join that band, and then we'd call it Bivouac. I was in vocal groups back at the time, like madrigal singers and stuff. We were always doing harmonies and reading choir and all that stuff. That combined with this social life that was built around writing, I was always, always writing. Very, very young. It's my escape. Like the way people do crossword puzzles or something like that, or go for a walk, I just write. So that's always been part of the picture. My name's Jen Hartswick, and I play trumpet and sing in the Trini Sesio Band. I've never met anybody who writes as much as he does. We've had several conversations about songwriting, and he's like, you know, just do it a little every day. And it's a skill that you get better at. And don't be so precious about it, just let it come out. When he writes, he writes without edit. And then maybe later on down the road, you know, he does, but I, the sheer volume of stuff that comes out of his pen is completely mind blowing. I don't know how to comprehend it. <laughs> it's, he's a total freak of nature. My name is Ray Patchkowski. I'm the keyboardist in the Transtasio band. He's always been incredibly interested in other songwriters and, and the craft of writing a song. Like we hear a song on the radio sometimes like, man, wish I could have wrote that song like that. That's a perfect song. You know, I have friends who are doctors and lawyers and I have friends that are like day laborers and no one works harder than Trey of all my friends. Like he's always working. He gets up early and he's writing songs. Even when he's walking, he's on his phone or he's listening to something, making changes, noting down changes. He's just always, always working. I, you know, I had high school bands and stuff and always original music. Like every band, we would cover our favorite 
groups. When I was in, you know, let's say ninth or 10th grade, that would probably be Peter Gabriel. Yes. <laughs> King Crimson. One of my early favorites, uh, Sly and the Family Stone, which my parents had records in their bin. I used to listen to those records all the time. But that cream. But always writing original music right from the beginning. My dad was my coach when I was growing up. He was a hockey coach. I know the older I get, the more I realize this, that he really instilled in me a belief that teams win and that the way to be successful is to utilize the strengths of everyone, find, see what each individual has to offer and that a team will win and an individual will never win. This was a big lesson for me. There's, there's no one on a team that doesn't have something to offer and your job as like a coach, a leader, is to find what each person has to offer and to find a place to celebrate that. That really stuck with me. And I think that's really had a lot to do with my life in bands. I went to UVM and I was a music major. Funnily enough, I actually, just, I'm not making this up, I actually failed music theory or something. I was just being rebellious. They're lovely people and it's a great program, but I wanted to write. I wanted to be a composition major because I was already writing so much music. This is right around the time when the first Fish record came out and you know, the white tape and all that. I was already writing constantly. And at that program, you had to be a senior. You could, you know, you studied for four years. And then as a senior, you could write your first piece. And I just was kind of like, I didn't, this is not for me. So I just never went to class and actually did fail music theory. <laughs> I wanted to work with a composer. So I started looking around the area for a working composer whose pieces were being performed. And I ended up meeting Ernie, I was 18. So Ernie Styers, he was down in the Middlebury area. I don't know what it was, but I walked in his door and I had like hair down to my ass and, and he said something, I remember, he said, you look like a drowned rat. <laughs> Instantly loved him. And this guy like smoked two packs of cigarettes a day and had his cocktail at five o'clock and had a big old piano from 1902 and he hated everything, hated every kind of music. And he became like my second dad. He became a mentor, not just in music, but I loved him so much. I would go down there all the time. I would just drive down there and sit by his piano and we would just sit there and like shoot the shit. Anyway, the first day that I got down to him, he said, do you want to compose? And I said, yes. And he said, okay, go home and write me, I'll never forget this, a 32 bar, two part invention using a two bar theme, right? Bring it back by Wednesday. I went home, I wrote this thing, I brought it back, he played it, and then he looked at me and he said, does that sound good to you? And I said, no. And he said, you want me to tell you why? His theory, which was in contrast to what I was learning at music school was, if you have ears, you're gonna know. 
but I can't teach you to write music. That's basically what he would say. You've either got the ears or you don't. Uh, if so, I can teach you. Now you gotta remember that I had been playing Bach on the guitar, so I could clearly hear that what I was writing wasn't good. <laughs> like, compared to that. He was basically saying, write your own gavotte. Does that sound as good as the Bach gavotte you're playing? I'd say no. And then he'd say, well, let me try to tell you why. And we took it from there. Later, Trey and I started recording Just the Two of Us. And that was, you know, maybe 84, 85. And that was the first stuff that was used for fish, I think. You know, Slave and Antelope, the white tape stuff. Well, I was writing for fish, but I was writing for the group that I had that could play it at the time. I always composed this music and then I would just attach it to a song so Fish could play it, sort of. I mean, that's the God's honest truth. If you think about like All Things Reconsidered or like It's Ice or these songs, Reba, Split Open and Melt, You Enjoy Myself. I am so lucky that those guys were so cool about this. The guys in the band, Mike Page especially, were, I mean, obviously Fish, but Mike and Paige, who really had to like learn this stuff, were incredibly kind to take the time. This is really hard music. I'm eternally grateful to them. My feeling was no one's ever gonna hear this stuff. So like if I don't find some way to sneak it in to a context that has an audience. So that was a very bizarre thing. And Ernie used to laugh with me. We would laugh and laugh and laugh. He'd be like, you're sneaking this stuff in there. Nobody even knows that they're listening to like atonal fugues <laughs> in the middle of, you know, Kula Papyrus or whatever it was. That's an atonal fugue. But you know, if you put on a, you know, you put on a poster for a concert, atonal fugue Thursday night, nobody's gonna come. <laughs> <laughs> pulled out the original Split Open and Melt score. Now, Split Open and Melt is completely scored. Every note, the bass line, the both hands of the piano, and the and the um, guitar, start to finish. Yesterday, Jeff Tansky played it for me on the piano. My name is Jeff Tansky. I'm one of Trey's musical collaborators. I loved getting to know some of his early stuff, the, the, all the stuff that was really super composed. Even though it was, you know, beautifully composed, there is sort of an edge to it that, you know, as a young guy, just his head was full of notes that he, you know, that, that he has to get out and, you know, this is how he's going to do it. That's all written out. A lot of that early stuff was completely scored, 
because one of the things I was studying with Ernie was like big band arranging. So like everything fits hand in glove, everything. The idea is that the music, if you stop it in time, it works horizontally or vertically. The themes run, but at any given point in time, all the notes make the harmony that you're intending to make. If you stop at any point in time, the bass note, the two hands of the piano and the guitar make a four note chord and it all moves in the correct motion, contrary motion or whatever, and up and down and it moves through keys. You, it's tonally disconnected, goes up and down. Jeff Tansky played the split open and melt chart, the original handwritten pencil split open and melt chart on the piano. And I thought in a certain way, it was the first time I'd ever heard it I think the improv benefited from the work that we did as a four piece, trying to learn all these complex pieces. One of the things we used to talk about a lot in the band was that the music is so integrated that precedes the jam. In other words, it's a four note chord at any point in time. The bass line, the two middle lines and the guitar, that when you play that way, even the drums, all the cymbals and stuff that the fish was doing, you go, you know, do 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 We're all like exactly linked. And we have to rehearse it so much to be able to play it tight. When you're relieved at the jam point, you end up improvising in a way that you wouldn't have. This was all composed. Then when you get to the jam, you are searching for that integration. Like you don't want to suddenly go to not being together. You want you want to stay there. It's like, oh my God, I, I, I miss you. Where are you? And 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 you start searching for the bass. And I think subsequently the improv moments were probably even better for that reason, that we had experienced the feeling of being integrated in such a composed way. I also was very lucky to see many Frank Zappa shows, and that had a huge influence on Tab. The last tour, I basically went on tour. I saw at least four of them. Yeah, I did the Zappa tour. <laughs> when he was doing the Stairway to Heaven with the horns. <laughs> I have his amp. I have his 1974 Marshall from the St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast Tour. So it's up at the barn, and it's got his original handwritten settings on it. They sold the guitar that I saw him play, the yellow Strat, which he played the greatest guitar solo I've ever seen a human play in City of Tiny Lights in Burlington. They played Memorial Auditorium. They played City of Tiny Lights. And he ripped it hard on the guitar. He was a huge influence on my guitar playing. He's 
very angular rhythmically. I mean, it's just such a such an influence as an electric guitar player on, on me. You know, he would oh, like, oh, like these paragraphs of energy. Was like kind of angry and like like let it out, let it fly. Amazing guitar player. Later, Dweezil told us that he played Rift for his father and that his father thought it was really cool. The album when it came out, it was like It's Ice or something. And this absolutely made my my head blew up. Nothing. It's one of the happiest things I've ever heard that Dweezil played a couple songs off Rift and Frank. Gave it his grim-faced approval. <clears throat> That's pretty cool. <laughs> Alive Again will return after a quick break. Arguably the greatest concert I've ever seen, which really, truly life-changing concert, was when King Sunny Ade played at Memorial Auditorium in 1983. And I went with Fish, me and Fish, and we stood in the front row, and there was, I think, 21 people or something on stage. It was 1983, we were 18. They were playing, and it was, everything was tongue and groove. Everyone was playing at once, and it was making this pattern there was a mentality to the whole thing that was inclusive. It was so life-changing for me. And I looked around and everyone in the whole room was dancing. I'm talking about all the door people were dancing, older women, small children, everyone was dancing. And the message of the music on stage was complete inclusiveness. That was what led to Surrender to the Air too. at the attempt. I was making every desperate attempt to try to figure out how you can have a layered, inclusive group that included men, women, older, younger, you know, whatever, all the different aspects of humanity. <laughs> when, I, when I did Surrender to the Air, I was trying to get to this thing where it was everyone bouncing along at the same time. Surrender to the Air was another attempt to get at this King Sunny Idea concept. I wanted to learn from my heroes. Honored isn't a big enough word to say to be standing in the room with all those people, you know, including O'Teal at the time, you know, Michael Ray, Marshall Allen, and then Bob Galati, who is the best drummer, the best drummer. Yeah, the guys, Medeski, I think was there. Mark Rubeau, another one. Fishman, I feel the same way about him. I can't believe I'm in a band with that guy. I was pretty young and it was about trying to soak up the utter mastery of these master musicians and, and learn. So that was really cool. Hi, I'm O'Teal Burbridge. I remember being very psyched because the thing that we heard was that Trey was gonna do this album with guys from Sun Ra's orchestra. And we were like, oh, yes, yes, double yes, triple yes, a hundred times yes. 
So we were really psyched for that. And then all the other people that were going to be a part of it, you know, Medeski and Mark Rebo and Bob Galati, obviously Fishman, you know, who I knew, but it was something. We were very excited to do it. I felt like a big, wide open, taking it all in. I think I was also asked a lot of people to be part of that who were, they had a similar quality to all of them that I wanted to learn from about Abandon. He has a vision of the way he sees things. There's a certain level of musician that I kind of put a little bit higher. They think conceptually, and it comes from composing, really. Like, improvisation is really just composing on the fly, you know? If you've delved into composing, then it's going to serve you better when it comes time to try to improvise. Because you have to think conceptually. I don't know, you have to zoom out in a way. So I think he obviously has that perspective, you know, which helps in band leading also. Sunrise used to play a lot on the East Coast, and we were very lucky to have been around. I got to see him numerous times. It was, and, and I remember one show, Fish and I drove down to Boston to see him at this bar in like this hotel bar. <laughs> And there must have been like nine people in the audience. It's the best concerts, the best. You know, like Marshall Allen was just such a hero to me. I'd been to numerous Sun Ra concerts where Marshall Allen had like ripped open my soul with his soloing. His tone, it, it, so instantly recognizable as Marshall Allen. He can play one note and it's like, oh, there's Marshall Allen. So I was really nervous to be even standing in the room with him, to be perfectly honest. So that's the truth. He's like the highest level for me of, 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 of improviser. I mean, everyone in Sun Ross Band, but Marshall particularly, like a finger pointing at, you know, this vast unknown consciousness pouring through his horn all the time. And similar to experiences I used to have listening to Jimi Hendrix, where I used to think, wow, I can almost see with my ears like these demons coming out of his chest, like And then at the end of the solo, they would suck back in, like like back into his, you know what I mean? Marshall Allen had that, like he's like blowing around, like it's like, oh my God. So I think I just wanted to soak that up. We knew if we were doing this thing and it was, kind of built around the Sun Ra guys that it was going to be wide open, that we could just be making sounds in outer space and remember it very well. Because, uh, you know, being assembled with that group of uh, people at Electric Ladyland, you know, you're in Hendrix studio. So it was just crazy, you know, and really super fun like so much fun just uh there's no pressure you know there's no good or bad right or wrong anything you know we were just there and we were doing it and, and i and i i could feel trey and fishman's sense of glee all around it was a extremely memorable experience You just learn from these masters by, by playing with them. That's what it was about. 
my brother-in-law opened higher ground with a partner, um, but it was kind of his original vision. And he took us into this Denny's. There was a Denny's they were closing. Me and Sue and my very, very small children at the time, or child maybe, like a one-year-old, Eliza. And um, he's like, this is where the stage is gonna go. Will you do the first, open the first show or the first weekend? And I said, only if I can start a whole new band and write all the music. And he said, okay, sure. I'm Kevin Statzer, uh, founder of Higher Ground and the brother of Sue Statzer who married Trey and became Sue Anastasio. I said, you know, Trey, it'd be really great to put us on the map if, if you wanted to to play. Um, I know that, you know, you're really busy and you don't have time. He goes, oh, I've been thinking about this idea, you know, where I could write some music. And uh, he goes, I'll do it, but you would have to let me do all new material. And he asked me, like, I was going to think that was a bad thing. And I was like... Uh, yeah, like, sure, like, of course, you know, what do you mean? Like, uh, you, 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 that's not a problem. <laughs> you write all the music you want. He said, I'm going to invite people from all of the top bands in Burlington at that time. So then I called Tony, you know, who I had been wanting to be in a band with since I visited Burlington. Tony occupies a space in my mind, in my life, that's very important. He was like another mentor to me. Tony's band was Big Joe Burrell and the Unknown Blues Band. And Big Joe was like a Chicago blues man who kind of moved to Burlington. Big Joe would be playing and you'd go dancing. Everyone danced at his shows, like everyone danced. There was, I don't understand what that quality was, but that was the thing that, same thing with King Sunny Day, that really attracted me. There was something in the music that was inclusive and it made people feel safe. Big Joe would play like the picnic in the park and, you know, little kids would get up and dance. And yeah, a lot of it had to do with Tony, I think. And I didn't know this. Trey just mentioned that watching Tony play uh, in the Unknown Blues Band. And that's what made him decide ultimately to go to the University of Vermont. If he didn't go there, he wouldn't have met Fishman. And just that alone is enough to make me shudder. Thank God he saw Tony play. <laughs> I always loved Tony so much and uh i saw him in big joe burrell and the unknown blues band my favorite band who played at my wedding by the way first dance was to tony I'm a big believer in a good drummer. I think a band is only as good as their drummer. You better have a good drummer or give it up. Tony told me about Russ. I asked Tony if you could play with any drummer in the world, who would it be? And he said, Russ Lawton. And I was like, okay, he's our drummer. That, that's how that happened. Hired, I hired before I ever met him. Tony told me about Russ. He's amazing. He started off in an African band, it's called Zebra. Back when that kind of like world music thing, it was like in the 80s really wasn't a thing yet. And they were a really good band. That's where he got his thing. Hi, my name is Russ Lawton, drummer for the Trey Anastasio band. And I remember meeting Tony at our gig outside. He was like, hey, you sound great, man. And ever since then, we were friends. And when Tony um, said, well, I, I, want to, I want to get like, you know, Trace, I want to get kind of an African thing where you just all like cross rhythms all going together. He goes, well, we should try my buddy Russ because I did that in, in that in that Zebra band. And we got together in Paul Languedoc's garage. Thank you, Paul. 
while Paul built guitars, we jammed. And I think I kind of was like, go to your DNA feel. Like, it's that thing I learned about coaching. I was like, Russ, who are you? What was the first beat you ever played in high school? What's the beat you play when you go into a drum store and you sit down and, you know what I mean? Where does your body go without even having to think about it? With Russ, a lot of times it's kind of the swung hat, like, you know, almost like the drifting beat. He's got this incredible swing, like half swung feel. I was like, okay, that's it. We're going to start there. And then Tony, you know, is like the simple. And then I just built the first song around that. It was just like deliriously build up. And the first two songs we wrote were First Tube and Sand on day one. It's this cross rhythmic dance pulsing thing. It went straight back to King Sunny Day in my mind. This is all like day one. We wrote those two songs first day. I think Gotta Jabu was the next one. <laughs> Those are probably the first three songs. He was like, well, I got a lot of songs, which I didn't know him back then, but now I realized that he does at all times, <laughs> which I love about him. But he goes, well, let's start something new. The high ground was opening up. And I said, well, I got some grooves. I've been in songwriting bands my whole life, and I'm always logging in beats and things. So I gave him that first two beat, and he, he recorded them. He said, what else you got? And I can remember like a week later, you know, there was no inter really internet back then as much. So the cassette tape showed up, FedEx. I still have the tape. <laughs> and it's, it says April 19th. I think that was the date. You know, first, I'm like, wow, these are, this is some cool stuff, you know? And songs we still play to this day. <laughs> it's pretty cool. First tube got its name because it was the opening song to the April Fluorescent Tube show. I was like, well, well, that song will be called First Tube, and then the, the closing song will be called Last Tube. Trey put a band together. We had no idea. The rehearsals were completely, like, private. He didn't let anybody in. It was a complete surprise. Trey being an ultimate, you know, like, a consummate professional on things really, I think, planned a lot that we didn't even know he was planning through the band end of it, you know, and that the people helping him made it really, it you know, upped our game uh, more than we, we knew that he was going to do. We had dancers on stage with eight foot long plugged in fluorescent tubes. They're actually like fluorescent lights, like Uncle Glenn they didn't get electrocuted, dancing around. So it's sort of like the clone type of Broadway concept has always been very close to my heart. <laughs> I was like dancers and people in costumes and stuff like that. That was a fun night. He's like, well, we need a curtain. And I thought, oh, I'd like to make it more like a theater. I didn't realize it was like really technically hiding the band. There was a band and four of them, there were like nine people on the stage and it was a club, it wasn't a big theater. So just that amount of people when they all came in, I'm like, maybe they're with the catering. <laughs> but no, they were in the band. But we were like, hey, go for it, whatever you wanna do. We're brand new, we're a club, you know, the, the more we can get people to talk about this, probably the better, and thus it was. They played through about maybe almost an hour of all new material. And then he started just dragging people up and it became like a, you know, a jam session. That was the beginning of Higher Ground. And really he has told me many times since then, beginning of kind of his solo career. went up for eight foot fluorescent tubes and that was uh, April 98 and that was definitely the basis for what became Tab. I mean he had some musicians that showed up later here and there 
uh, trombonist James Harvey, for sure, Heloise, um, Tom Lawson. But most tellingly were the drummer Russ Lawton and uh, bass player Tony Marcalis. You know, the band was definitely formed around that killer rhythm section, Tony and, and Russ. February 99, that's when the real Tab Trio played its first gig. Also at higher ground, and I was definitely there, not wanting to miss anything. Even though we did a flip rest and tubes, for me it was always about Tony and then immediately Russ. It was about Tony and Russ. And he gets busy with fishing, I knew that. And so when he called in 99, we did another high ground show. And then the next day it's like, we're gonna do a tour. I liked that tour a lot, the 99 tour. I remember getting into a couple of grooves with the trio that were like, those guys had an ability to get so locked in the, like the groove was locked. And then I'd be playing the guitar and I could hear the, the dinging of the cymbal just like dead tight with the guitar. Like, and he'd just be, he wouldn't really vary what he was doing. It was much more like, oh man. I mean, the two of those guys, one of the things I recognized immediately, which has still been true, and I think anybody who's seen Tab would agree with this, they're kind of like a freight train leaving the station when it comes to the groove, it's so heavy. It's the heaviest groove. The music was incredible, and yeah, there was some serious magic going on. First tube with Tab is like, it's like a rocket getting shot to the moon. That's what it feels like. When that beat, when that groove starts with Russ and Tony, it's like, I, it's like the heaviest thing I've ever heard. I can't even, they fall into some groove thing, and same thing with sand. It is so heavy, and they were they always had that. But man, even like Jabu, like it would just get into this like hypnotic, it's almost like trance music or like, you know, electronica or something like Oh man. <laughs> and all the space, there was no horns or anything. I like the trio, man. That's what I remember. It's the groove was so heavy. I always noticed a lot of women dancing, cross-section of women from different parts of life older, younger, like really dancing right away from 99, from that from that group and still through the years with Tab. Like it's like there's like a primal quality to the groove. Just the, the sheer excitement of a Tab show, you know, seeing Trey in a trio, it's crazy. When I play with those guys, like I said, it feels like a rocket launching or it feels like, like you're surfing at like, you know, it feels like surfing at the Bonsai Pipeline. Like the wave is so huge. There's no way you're gonna push it around. It's just nasty and low and bottom and hip based. It's like ass and hip. That's <laughs> so good, man. It's the best. They've never started one of those songs without me like shaking my head in awe. It's the best thing ever. Like just it's starting sand. With, is like the greatest 32 seconds of, <laughs> I like turn around like sand. They're like, <laughs> everyone should experience that once in their life. <laughs> I love Tony. I just love Tony so much.
loved the camaraderie of being in a band the way I do. And I think it's something that we both bonded over. I love band practice so much. There aren't enough words for me to, I, if I go to heaven, it's gonna be band practice because I love the forming, I love the laughter and I love the, he shared that. And as his life went on, I'm so happy in the end of his life that he was able to do that so much with me and with other people. But he was in a lot of bands throughout his life. Like I said, he loved band practice like I do. He, he loved it. He just was like, doesn't like getting up early. Band practice is always two hours later. These are all, all these comments are said with incredible amounts of love. And I he would say, what time are we hitting it tomorrow, Trey? And I'd be like, uh, 11? And he'd be like, uh, and I'd be like, one? Two? And he's like, there you go, now you're talking. And so we started to. <laughs> he always wanted to start band practice later. From the first day I ever got in a band with him, I had a secret method of teaching him material where I would fool him, I would sneak it up on him. I would just teach one section at a time and I would always say, that's it, that's all you have to learn. And then like the next day I'd be like, oh wait, I got this other, this little thing, just, it's like five minutes, don't worry, it won't take that long. So one of the ones that I remember is Simple Twist Up Dave, which is a tab song. So the beginning is it's like one chord and then I was singing the horn parts but so it was like a rhythm that I was hearing like it's like so there was like an up and down bouncing thing and we got it it's on one chord and then I remember I was like okay now we're gonna go to the sort of B section where it goes, boom, and Tony's sitting over there, he's like, why? And I'm like, well, because it's not done yet. And he's like, that's enough. Why do you always have to add more sections? And we got into this whole thing. <laughs> and I was like, Tony, because it's not done. We would get into it and in a fun way. I enjoyed it. I always liked that. He had his opinions. I have other memories. God, I think about so many memories with Tony. He liked the whole rock and roll touring thing. Tony liked it. Like, yeah, he liked to just be in the middle of that. Like he would park himself right in the middle of all this mayhem and he liked it. He would just sit there sort of with his arms crossed. Everybody's like running around like, you know, clanging and following your thoughts. And he just kind of had a smile on his face. Like he was just like, he liked to be a part of it. He liked lovely conversation with the group. He liked when we went out and all got to share a meal. Tony always asked about your family and he would remember everybody's name and everything. My bus driver, Melvin, who's an amazing guy, you know, when Tony comes in the room, he's always kind of like, so how was your thyroid surgery? That he had had a little thyroid surgery. He would always remember that kind of stuff. And so he had a very sweet demeanor in that way. He was just a lovely guy. On the next episode of Alive Again. Tab got pretty good in like 2002. Got really really intense and then somebody ran on stage and they were like you have to stop right now the balcony's gonna fall down 
suddenly I was gonna play Alpine Valley and Deer Creek. And my argument was, we're not ready. I don't have enough songs yet, I know. I played the Alpine Valley tons of times with Fish. I, I know what it takes. That was a confusing time. We're trying to figure out what was going on, you know? Live Again is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are RJB and Matt Dwyer. Produced by Eric Renner-Brown. Interview and production assistance from Jesse Jarno. Production assistance from Matt Bavuso. Art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all the guests and contributors. My name is Wendy Rollins, and we'll see you next week for episode two. Osiris.